Welcome to the All of Christ for All of Life podcast. This audio is brought to you by Canon Press. This week, you will hear a few chapters from Douglas Wilson's Standing on the Promises, a handbook of biblical child rearing. If you'd like to hear the rest of this book, you can find it exclusively on the Canon app. Chapter 8 Love and Security Through Godly Discipline Discipline and Punishment We like to paint with a broad brush. In the modern world, discriminating is a bad word, and so we very rarely are. This is especially true of those areas which bear a superficial resemblance to anything else, whether or not there are profound differences on a more basic level. The difference between discipline and punishment is one such distinction, and one which all diligent parents must master regardless. And so what is the distinction? Discipline is corrective. It seeks to accomplish a change in the one being disciplined. Punishment is meted out in the simple interests of justice. In bringing up children, parents should be disciplining them. In hanging a murderer, the civil magistrate is not disciplining, he is punishing. One of the reasons our society is so unsafe is that the magistrate should be punishing, and he isn't. He should not be disciplining, and he is trying to. God disciplines his people as he takes them through the daily process of their sanctification. He has their final glorification in view, and all his discipline works towards that end. But on the last day, he shall punish the wicked. When God finally pitches the ungodly away from himself, he will have no intention of their subsequent improvement. Because discipline seeks to correct, it has accomplished its purpose when the correction has been made. And because children are very different, this means that there will be godly distinctions in the discipline received by various children. To say it again, kids are different. Their personalities differ. Their attitudes towards pain differ. And of course, they differ in sex. Consequently, if parents are seeking to accomplish a particular end through discipline, the amount of discipline required will vary as the nature of the child varies. Many parents know what it is like to spank a tough little tank of a boy who always tries to make it as far through a spanking as he can without crying. They also know what it is like to see their other child dissolve into tears if the displeased parent looks at her sideways. Parents many times feel guilty because there is such a disparity in the amount and intensity of discipline each child receives. But there is no sound reason for such guilt. It is false guilt. Compare the problem to one of physical dirt. Suppose some parents have two children, one a dainty girl who despises getting dirty, and the other a real child of the soil. Should the parents feel guilty if the second one gets more baths? Not at all. Baths are given according to need, and so are spankings. Scrubbings are given according to the resistance and tenacity of the grime, and drubbings are given on the same principle. As a result, 
When a child is disciplined, it is crucial that the parents avoid the pattern of going through the motions. Many Christian parents have read enough on discipline to know that they are supposed to spank their children, and so they do. But such spankings can often be seen as nothing more than a mindless routine. And why? The spankings do not achieve the intended effect. To return to the analogy of the bath, it is as though parents knew that well-cared-for children take baths, and so every night they pop the kids into the tub. They never run the water and never use soap, but they do get in the tub. The purpose of disciplinary spanking is to alter behavior. If it does not alter the behavior, then the parents are not applying disciplinary spanking. I have seen parents spank in astonishing ways. A muffled whoomph on the diapers, far from eliminating a child's whining, will only increase it. Because the point of discipline is to alter behavior, then ineffective discipline is not really discipline at all. It becomes punishment and of a bizarre, trifling variety. The standard for a godly home is simply this, prompt and cheerful obedience. This standard, if it is to have any meaning at all, must be enforced whenever there is a violation of the standard. Now the thing that keeps many parents from enforcing such a standard is really their unbelief. They do not believe that discipline will really alter how the kids act around the house. But it does. I have seen parents who are constantly frazzled by their children fighting, squabbling, quarreling, hitting, moaning, and carrying on, and who put up with it for years on end, when they could put a complete stop to it in three days. All that is needed, to use a phrase my wife and I had, is a short little reign of terror. This would occur when every infraction was dealt with painfully every time. The kids catch on. The objection is that busy parents do not have time to discipline every 10 minutes for the rest of their lives. This is where our unbelief is seen. The rest of our lives? Such discipline would be applied for just a few days, and then the home would be transformed. Discipline works. It is used by God to remove folly from the heart of the child. For those parents who seek to be wiser than God, rejecting discipline, nothing awaits their children but a wrenching series of sharp punishments, culminating in the final punishment from the hand of the Lord. Those who refuse to understand discipline hate their children. The choice is clear. Discipline now or punishment then. The manner of discipline. Because the Bible defines discipline as an act of love, it will only function properly in a broad context of love. It must never be motivated by ungodly anger. In Galatians 6.1, Paul teaches us, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. This principle is not set aside simply because we are dealing with our children. 
We are required by Scripture to correct one another, and this is particularly true in the home. But if we correct someone else, we must be spiritually qualified ourselves. If a parent is angry with his child, he is not spiritual and is therefore disqualified from administering the discipline. If the discipline is administered with a bad attitude, it is not going to be as effective as it would have if it had been calm and judicial. For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 Consequently, a parent cannot bring man's anger toward his children in the act of discipline and then expect to appropriate the blessing God promised for godly discipline. If he is doing the right thing externally, spanking his children, for example, but the manner and disposition of love is missing, it will not have the blessing of God. God does not bless the unrighteous anger of parents. Equally important is the fact that discipline must not be motivated by embarrassment. There is no question that misbehavior or disobedience by children results in embarrassment at times for parents. The child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Proverbs 29.15 Lack of discipline does result in shame for the parents. But it is crucial that the parents not be motivated to their discipline because of personal embarrassment. One benefit of this is that it keeps children from learning how to manipulate a situation. Children have a real genius for doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. Why do some children throw fits in the supermarket instead of in the kitchen? At home, they know that discipline is inconvenient in the supermarket and that it creates an awkward situation for the parents. But in such situations, children are not to be disciplined because they have succeeded in embarrassing their parents. The discipline of the children should not come from the damaged ego of the parents. If a parent is immediately embarrassed and disciplines because of it, the discipline will not be for the benefit of the child. And because embarrassment is not consistent, the discipline will not be consistent either. The manner of the parent in discipline should be to show that the intention is to restore fellowship between parent and child. But if there is no context of love, then there is no real fellowship to restore. If, after a spanking, the child consistently turns away from his parent or runs away, this is an indication that there may be no standing fellowship to restore. If the child turns back to his mother or father for comfort after a spanking, that is an indication that there is such standing fellowship. Of course, even well-loved children are sinners and will be tempted to exhibit this sin through sulking. So if a child ever turns away from his parent, the parent must not immediately assume he is a horrible parent. The child might just want to sulk and should be disciplined for it. But if that turning away is a regular pattern and the child never turns back to his parents, that should be a danger sign. A home must be a context of love, and discipline is designed to restore the fellowship of that relationship. Parents should recognize that discipline prevents misbehavior on the part of the child. 
If a child is not receiving enough attention from his father or mother, and there is no standing context of love, he will often begin to misbehave in order to get attention. Many children operate on the theory, any attention is better than no attention. At school, the children who are running on fumes at home will try to get attention by being popular. If they do not have the capacity to be popular, they undertake a campaign to become unpopular. It is better, they think, to be center stage and a dork than to be off stage, well behaved, and ignored. They are unlovely, but at least they are being noticed. The natural tendency even for parents is to turn away from such an unlovely child, which sends the child further down that road. They get less and less attention, and so they act up more to get more attention. The only real solution to this is for the parents to love and discipline. If a father notices his child starting to act up for no apparent reason, he should treat that as a blinking red light, which says, my child needs my love and discipline. Parents need to discipline specific misbehavior, but they must also realize if they are getting more disobedience and back chat in return, they need to check whether there is an established and standing context of love. If a child is being neglected and then is disciplined for misbehavior, it is like knocking off bad fruit from a tree while parental neglect waters and fertilizes that same tree. Parents must guard against creating what they oppose. It is not enough to have a context of love surrounding all acts of discipline. The discipline itself is to be done in a loving way. If a parent has the attitude of, let me at that kid, and is angry or embarrassed, he is spiritually disqualified to administer the discipline. When the parent is qualified to discipline, he probably does not feel like it. And when he really feels like it, he is probably not qualified. This is why discipline must be applied in obedience to God's word and not in an emotional reaction to a particular situation. The Christian parent must be a biblical parent, not a reacting parent. The rod is to be applied because God requires it. Parents must therefore surround their children with a biblical love. In that environment, sin will still manifest itself because the child remains a descendant of Adam. But when it does, the parents will deal with it in a context of love. This kind of discipline works. But in a home without love and security, when sin manifests itself, and then the parents start whacking away at it, they will simply produce more sin. The right thing at the right time. Doing something wrong or backwards does not take much preparation or thought. A very common example of this is seen in how many parents think about the transition of their children from infancy to the teenage years. In Proverbs 19:18, it says, Chasten your son while there is hope, and do not set your heart on his destruction. People fall prey to the illusion created by small, cute children. When a child sins, he oftentimes sins in a cute way, 
and the parents indulge it. When a child first comes into the house, he is small and cute. Although the Bible tells us that we're all sinners by nature, it most certainly does not look this way to us as we are joyfully bending over the crib. Because the child is cute, it is often the case that his sin is cute to us as well. Because of this, and because his sin doesn't damage anything much, parents do not discipline effectively for multitudes of little sins. But the years go by, very quickly, and the parents are soon confronted with a child who is capable of getting pregnant, or getting someone pregnant, getting arrested, buying drugs, and so on. In short, the child is now of sufficient size to wreck his life. In a panic, his parents attempt to institute a regime of strict discipline. Not surprisingly, this provokes even more rebellion. What has gone wrong? Parents often think the teen years are a time to start imposing standards. But when a child is older, that should be the time when the standards are lifted and not imposed. If the child has been properly disciplined when he is young, he will be self-controlled and responsible. He should not have very many rules remaining by the time he is 16 or 17. If the parent feels that there must be rules at this time, that simply means that not enough standards were imposed when he was younger. If a home is governed by rules, 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 when the young man is 17 years old, how will he maintain a standard of godliness when he leaves home at 18? The parents will not be able to restrain him when he joins the U.S. Navy and is on shore leave somewhere in Japan. But if he has been formed and taught properly when he was young, when he is old, he will not depart from the way his parents taught him. Proverbs 22, 6. And you fathers, bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Ephesians 6, 4. Paul says that fathers are to bring their children up in the training and admonition of the Lord. The verb translated here as bring up also means to nourish up to maturity or nurture. This requires intelligent oversight of the entire growing process. The goal of child-rearing must be Christian maturity displayed in our children. This goal must be in the minds of the parents long before it is reached. It must be in mind from the beginning. The Bible requires fathers to exercise this kind of intelligent oversight of their children as they grow. The critical years in this process are the early ones. An oak sapling can be bent with very little effort. If 50 years are added, it will be an entirely different story. So why do so many Christian parents let the saplings in their homes grow without strict pruning and then try to shape the tree only after all the problems with their folly are manifest in the form of a huge, twisted oak? The answer is that many Christian fathers are foolishly disobeying Ephesians 6.4. Instead of loose tolerance when the kids are little and clamping down as they grow older, a biblical approach is just the reverse. As stated earlier, small children should live in a totalitarian police state at home. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, but the rod of correction. 
will drive it far from him. Proverbs 22.15 The smaller a child is, the more decisions should be made for him. Conversely, the older the children are, the fewer the external restrictions there should be. As a child is being reared properly, he should experience greater and greater freedom. This is possible because early strict discipline works and has by now been internalized. The easy mistake to make is that of indulging children when they are small and cracking down on them as they grow. Instead of this, parents should be super strict with little ones and gradually remove restrictions as the children mature. The teenage years are no time to institute strict discipline. In other words, when a child is small, he should not be burdened with responsibilities. When a child is older, he should not be burdened with restrictions. When our children were young, we would discipline for things that many would consider little. For example, one infraction that could bring about a spanking would be whining. This might cause some readers to roll their eyes heavenward. If we disciplined for whining, we would have to discipline every 10 minutes for the next 20 years. The first part is quite true. One might have to do this every 10 minutes, especially if there has been parental indulgence of the sin of whining. But it does not have to be done for 20 years. It only has to be done consistently for two or three days, at which time the whining will stop. Many parents might wonder, however, whether their two-year-old can understand the connection between the discipline and the whining. This concern can be addressed with a simple question. Does this two-year-old understand the connection between his whining and whatever it is he wants? The answer, of course, is yes. Such an understanding is why he whines. This means that the child is fully capable of understanding the nature of cause and effect and is therefore capable of understanding the discipline. The reason he still whines is because he has not been disciplined for it. Obviously, this should not be done from some dictatorial need to boss kids around. This kind of strict discipline when children are little is self-sacrificial. It is much easier on self to let things go. The purpose of such discipline is so that it will not be necessary to exercise strict discipline later, after it has become extremely difficult or impossible. Although we disciplined for many small things as our children grew, we gave them greater and greater freedom as we saw them mature. For example, when the children were younger, we had strict standards concerning entertainment. There have been many times when our younger children were not permitted to watch a movie that other Christian kids were watching on video at a birthday party, for example. But when our oldest daughter was 16, we told her that she was now free to make her own decisions on whether to watch a film with her friends or not. There was no longer any need to phone home. We did not do this because objectionable movies were now all right to watch. They are not. But because we can now trust her to make good choices. 
The irony was that she had now been given a much greater freedom in this than many of her friends from less strict homes. The sum of the matter is this. When other young children are cruising the neighborhood without restraint, your children should be at their home, Camp Pendleton. And ten years later, when the kids in the neighborhood are all getting grounded, yours should finally be getting airborne. The Husband and Wife Team An important part of a child's security comes from Christian parents learning to discipline together on the basis of the authority that God has given to them. They are invested with authority. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 1-4 that the central authority is given to fathers. At the same time, mothers are usually very interested in the implementation of godly discipline. It is therefore important for him to invest authority in her. When dad comes home in the evening after being away at work, the children will usually mind him after having given their mother trouble all day. He should not say to his frazzled wife, what is your problem? Once I was talking to a man who pointed this out while boasting over his wife. He said something like, I really discipline the kids well, but my wife can't control them. He was talking as though he were winning a competition with her. But if he is disciplining them and she is not, the end result will be undisciplined children. And it is his problem. Consequently, whenever children are dealing with their mother, they should see behind their mother the looming shadow of their father. It does not matter if he is on the other side of the country. Dad should invest his full authority in her and back her up completely. Whether the father is physically in the home or not, he is still responsible for the discipline. He is to come to his wife and solicit information from her on how the day went. He should not have to wait for her to get to such a high level of frustration that she dumps it on him. So the husband's perception of home life is not to be limited to what he sees. He must communicate with his wife. He needs to be in communication with the teachers of his children. Fathers are responsible to see to it that their children are well-disciplined all the time. This is a command from God. If they are brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord, then the fathers will have done their job. The father cannot come up before God when he calls him to account for how his children ended their lives and excuse himself by saying, If my wife had only been a stricter disciplinarian, if she needs to be stricter, he must see to it. He must give her more authority, strength, and support. Many times the wife is doing everything God expects of her. When she spanks, the spanking is painful, and when she corrects, the correction is prompt and strict. But if her husband is not backing her up, the impact she is going to have on her children is going to be far less than if he were supporting her. When our children were little, my wife disciplined them more frequently than I because she was around them more during the day. She knows how to spank, and she did it right. At the same time, the children tended to pay more attention to me. Some would say that this does not make any sense. The person that should be feared is the one who exercises the most discipline. 
But God has vested the foundational authority in the home with the father. Consequently, the father should self-consciously assume that role and should support his wife fully. I can still remember very clearly the three big no's when I was growing up. Lying, disobedience, and disrespect of our mother. My father backed my mother up completely. Discipline in the Christian home should be conducted over time with an appropriate sense of urgency. Eternal things depend upon what we do, as well as whether our children end their lives in temporal ruin. By urgency, I do not mean panic, stress, or anxiety. It must be intelligent, focused, biblical urgency. Mothers are commonly tempted to an inappropriate anxiety. They tend to take the rearing of their children more seriously than husbands do, and this brings a separate set of temptations with it. Oftentimes, if it is late and the wife is tired and finally has a moment to herself, she is tempted to think, Oh, I am a rotten mother. My kids are not obeying me properly. If she then starts trying to discipline her children from a sense of anxiety, she will be doing it incorrectly. Chapter 9 The Application of Godly Discipline A Scenario I have a problem, Stephen said. What's that? Robert looked up from his coffee. The two were co-workers and had decided to have lunch together. It's my kids. I've got two boys, both preschool age, and they're driving my wife up the wall. And to be honest, she's driving me up the wall. How come? Our standards are different. She has higher standards for the kids with regard to how they behave, and I have higher standards about what constitutes actual discipline. So she is frustrated with how infrequently you discipline and concerned about how strict you are when you do? Right. Listen, the reason I wanted to talk with you is because of your kids. They are older than mine, but whenever I am around them, I'm impressed with how well-behaved they are. Did your kids go through this stage? Will they grow out of it? Robert laughed. Yes, my kids went through this stage. But the stage is not called the terrible twos. The stage is called sin. And kids won't grow out of it. They grow more and more into it, unless they are disciplined in a biblical way. Okay, I'm listening. The biggest problem with parents of kids your age is that the parents expect far too little from them. What do you mean? They think that a two-year-old, for example, can't understand that whining is wrong. Stephen's eyes got wide. You disciplined for whining? Robert laughed. Certainly. But if we disciplined for whining, we would be disciplining them all day long, every day. For a couple of days. Then the whining would stop. Stephen sat back in the booth. Go on. This is what I mean by low expectations. You said that your wife had higher standards than you did, but neither of you have standards which are high enough. Because of that, you both put up with behavior which neither of you like. After a while, you get to your boiling point and wham, discipline occurs. 
but it is not effective discipline because it is occurring far too late in the game. It is the disciplinary equivalent of a Hail Mary pass. So you are saying that kids that age can understand the connection between the whining and the discipline? Of course they can. Can they understand the connection between the whining and whatever it is they want? Yes, they sure do that. So what makes you think that when it comes to what you require of them, they immediately become stupid? Stephen thought for a moment. You know, I really don't know. What you are saying is obvious. Why haven't we seen it? I can't say for sure, but there is one strong possibility. What's that? Disciplining your kids according to a high standard is hard work. Not doing it is easier. Postponing discipline until some crisis comes along is easy on the flesh. Okay, I have two questions then. The first is, how do we set this high standard? When it comes to attitudes and external behavior, based on those attitudes, your standards for your kids should be the same as the biblical standards for mature Christians. You can't be serious. I'm dead serious. You don't discipline for physical immaturity, clumsy motor skills which result in a spilled glass of milk, for example. But everything which is morally objectionable in adults should be disciplined for in children. Like... Like rudeness, tail-bearing, whining, complaining, ingratitude, envy, temper, cheating, laziness, lying, name-calling, pride, resentment, stealing, and back-chat, for starters. Stephen was shaking his head. My wife is not going to believe this. What was your second question? How can you be sure this will work? There are three reasons, I am sure. They are, God, in his word, tells parents to do it this way. According to the Bible, disciplining children works. The second reason is just common sense. What do you mean by that? Robert leaned over and tapped the table in front of Stephen. My philosophy of child-rearing is very simple. You are bigger than they are. If what they are doing is wrong, make them stop. Stephen laughed. And what is your third reason? I have seen it work. My children are all descendants of Adam. Just like yours. They were no less prone to sin than yours. But we sought to obey God in how we brought up our children. And he has blessed it. We're very grateful. Yes, but... Stephen stopped. Robert smiled. I know what you were going to say. Stephen looked up with a half smile. What was I going to say? You were going to say that it is all very well for us because we were fortunate enough to get good kids. Okay, but you do have good kids. But not by accident. Suppose a man has a garden, but he is knee-deep in weeds. He looks across the fence and sees his neighbor with nothing but vegetables. Can he say that it is all very well, but that his neighbor's garden doesn't have weeds in it? It doesn't have weeds for a reason. Stephen nodded his head. Makes sense. Robert leaned back and laughed. Do you want to hear a story I heard once? It's a true story. 
friend of mine and his wife were visiting his folks, who objected very strongly to the spanking of their precious grandson. Well, their little grandson got into trouble somehow and was taken off to the bedroom for his spanking. When dad came back, his folks just let him have it. What do you mean spanking our grandson? But one of the reasons they offered for not spanking him was really revealing. They said he should not be spanked because he was the most well-behaved grandchild they had. That was quite true. But it was true for a reason. Stephen thought for a moment. My kids aren't going to know what is happening to them. They'll catch on soon enough. This will involve lots of spanking. Robert smiled. Yes, it will. There were times when my wife spent the whole day with a wooden spoon in her hip pocket. We used to joke about having a holster made. But in the long run, you wind up disciplining far less. Stephen leaned forward. Okay, that brings up another point. Remember I mentioned that I had a stricter view of what constitutes discipline? Well, my wife has trouble spanking our kids. This sounds funny, but I think she needs spanking lessons. That is a common enough problem, but you can teach her. If you are taking responsibility for the whole area of child discipline, I think she will respect your teaching in this. Well, I need help there too. What can you tell me about teaching her to spank? What are some basic rules of spanking? There are four basic rules. Okay, what's the first? Never spank in anger. Don't discipline for your sake, but rather for the child's. The discipline should be judicial and calm. This is one area where high standards help. High standards mean that you will discipline when you are not emotionally close to the edge. If you only discipline when your kids are guilty of some outrage, it is harder to control your anger. The second, discipline must be painful. It must not inflict damage, so use a flat wooden spatula. At the same time, it must inflict pain, memorable pain. Don't spank over diapers. Don't spank with a little tap, tap, tap. Teach your wife to flick her wrist when she spanks and teach her to think sting. There are many parents who go through the motions of spanking, but they are not really spanking. How can you tell? By whether or not the child's behavior changes. What is the third thing? Spanking should be a time of instruction. The child should know what the offense was and that the Bible teaches against the offense. He shouldn't think he is being spanked because he got on your nerves. And the last, when the spanking is over, there must be a full restoration of fellowship. The child should be loved and held until the crying is over. Then you should pray with him. It should be fixed in his mind that God has used the spanking to cleanse him. They are forgiven. The subject is closed. Do you really think we can do all this? I certainly know that you can. Because there is hard work and self-discipline involved, it is up to you whether or not you will. Thanks. I am sure we'll have questions. Can I talk to you again sometime? Anytime. The mechanics 
of discipline. Reference was made above to the ineffectual nature of many spankings. This brings us to the subject of the mechanics of child discipline. This is where the rubber meets the road, or if we abhor cliches, where the wood meets the bottom. Perhaps some people who are sensitive on the subject of child abuse, or who have been abused themselves, cringe when they hear jokes like this about spanking. But one of the ways a person can tell whether there is a context of love in the home is in whether or not the children appreciate such humor. If they have enjoyed a context of love in the home, the rod is not something that is frightening to them at all. If a biblical home is functioning the way it should, and a child has been disciplined effectively, then that child has no problem understanding the need for discipline. They see it as a loving thing to do. Children must be disciplined because there is an eternal consequence to sin, which is far more grievous than the pain of a spanking. When parents spank their child, they are placing obstacles between the child and hell which is the child's destiny apart from the gracious intervention of God. God uses godly parents as one of his means of intervening. Proverbs 23, 13, and 14 says, Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Many tender parents are afraid of overdoing the discipline. Many Christian parents are very tender-hearted, gentle, kind, and love their children very much. But they are afraid that if they spank their children too much, they are going to cross the line into child abuse. But the division between godly spanking and child abuse is not a nebulous gray area. Christians should have very little patience with the impression of child abuse created by humanistic social workers, which virtually considers abuse as anything unpleasant happening to a child. But the two are as different as night and day. There is a stark difference between sharp discipline applied in a context of love and self-centered child abuse. The world and its propaganda machine warn that we have to be very careful about this and not go too far. Their message blurs the distinction between abuse and biblically mandated discipline. Christians need to be reminded that if they apply the rod to their child, it will not kill him, and that they need not be afraid to lay it on. They should not have pity on their child in the short term, but rather they should pity their child over the course of his life. The child is not capable of comprehending long term consequences. Children do comprehend and do not like sharp, short-term discipline, which is the whole point. The parent should not be afraid of overdoing biblical obedience. Christian parents who are in the greatest fear of overdoing it are, in fact, in grave danger of underdoing it, and this is fatal in an eternal way. The text in Proverbs says, Do not withhold correction. This leaves us as parents with an obligation to find out the elements of that correction and then diligently to apply it. Parents can withhold correction from the children in one of two ways. 
One is not to do anything, and the other is to go through the biblical motions, but to actually accomplish nothing. The first thing to note is that effective discipline is painful. Hebrews 12.11 says it this way, Now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Short-term discipline is painful. The long-term result of discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Short-term peace in the home can be purchased by not disciplining. I just got home from work, I'm tired, and I don't want a scene. I don't want to spank my child, I want a half hour of peace, and I'm willing to purchase this peace with my child suffering the long-term consequences. If it is effective discipline, it is going to be painful and unpleasant. If it is not painful, it is not discipline. Many Christian parents do not really spank, but simply go through the motions. Tippy-tap, tippy-tap, on the top of the diapers. It does not take the child very long to figure out this does not hurt. When there is no pain and discipline, there is a chronic unpleasantness in the home rather than acute pain. Discipline must be a memorable event. It is not effective as a low-grade unpleasantness. Sharp discipline is far more effective when there has been an atmosphere of pleasantness in the home. This atmosphere of pleasantness needs to be punctuated from time to time with pain. For example, even though we might want a pleasant evening with our guests rather than have to discipline our child, we must always contrast the short-term and long-term consequences. If the child is not disciplined immediately, Parents will never enjoy any pleasant evenings with any guests. Mothers are tempted to resort to threats and nagging. I am warning you, wait until your father gets home. But the father is tempted to neglect discipline as well. He doesn't want to sort through 15 different offenses over the course of the day, and so he trades in long-term, godly consequences for a dearly bought short-term peace in the home. If pain is being delivered effectively, in most situations, three to five swats are sufficient. If it is a major confrontation, five to ten swats may be in order. If the parents are spanking more than that on a consistent basis, then they are disciplining incorrectly. One time my wife got a phone call from someone who was delivering a great number of swats to a little child, and nothing was happening. There were no results. There was no correction in the child's behavior. The parent's arm was going through the air enough times, but there was no pain being delivered. When children are grown, they should be able to remember what the pain was like from certain spankings. They may not be able to remember what the spanking was for, because spankings cleanse and forgiveness follows. But the pain should be memorable. There must be pain in a good spanking, but no damage. A child abuser will inflict pain and damage, but this is not biblical discipline. But most Christian parents inflict neither pain nor damage. That is not discipline either. 
A spanking should be the kind of thing the child is unwilling to receive again. If a parent feels he is pounding his child and not making any difference, then he should seek spanking lessons from parents who are getting results. Parents should think to sting their children as opposed to clobbering them. When the child is stung, there is much pain and no damage. Another important component in effective discipline is consistency. If the standards are only enforced on Tuesdays and every second Wednesday, then the child is only being taught how capricious his parents are. These standards clearly cannot be biblical because they are only enforced sometimes. If they were God's standards, they would be enforced all the time. Instead, the children learn to think that discipline proceeds from dad's quirkiness. Sometimes this misbehavior is a big deal, and other times it is not a big deal at all. The child is being taught that his parents are arbitrary, and not that there is a standard that is fixed and immovable. Discipline should occur for those things that God requires, and not intermittently as the parents feel like it. However, it is not enough that discipline be painful and consistent. Effective discipline must also be proportioned to the offense. If the punishment does not fit the crime, there will be a great likelihood that the child will become discouraged. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3.21 Fathers need to take great care that they do not provoke their children through tyrannical discipline. Parents must also remember that the definition of proportionality should come from the scriptures and not from their own upbringing. For example, is lying a big deal in scripture? The answer is yes. When a child is speaking to his parent, there is no such thing as a white lie. Is whining a spankable offense? God disciplined the Hebrew children in the wilderness for their grumbling. Because of our connection to Adam, children will start grumbling as soon as they figure out how. The parents must respond. In God's book, complaining and grumbling and whining were not permitted. And then the child must be disciplined for it. Discipline should be more intense for outright defiance and rebellion than it would be for other offenses. One time, when my son was around two, he had his big wheel across the street. I called over to him and said, Nathan, I don't want you riding that in the street. He said, but I want to. I don't want you to, I replied. He said, I'm gonna. And he took off. Now, of course, I was not out there asking for a showdown. But when there was a direct challenge to my authority, I had to treat it as a major offense. The spanking should be proportional. If a child's bad attitude is being corrected, mom should say something like, No grumbling, using the name the family has for the sin, whining, fussing, etc. And if the child continues any longer, he must be spanked. You can't do that in this house. You are not allowed to grumble. At the same time, the spanking should be proportioned to the offense. 
related to this is the truth that effective discipline is within reason. In Psalm 103, 13 and 14, the Lord says, As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As our Heavenly Father, the Lord takes our frame into account and remembers that we are dust. Earthly fathers are to make sure they realize what their children's abilities are and what they are not. Many parents believe that their child has far less understanding than the child actually has. Sometimes parents go to the other extreme and assume the child has far more ability and understanding. Children are not to be disciplined for childishness or immaturity. But frequently, those are the things for which parents are tempted to discipline. Because the physical immaturity irks them or gets under their skin. Spilling the milk, wetting the bed, etc. are things that the child cannot usually help. But if the child is spanked anyway, he may think to himself, I got spanked for doing this and I cannot help it. His frame is not being considered or thoughtfully remembered. Suppose a child is walking through the living room, trips, knocks over the lamp, and breaks it. Pure accident. There should not be any discipline beyond a calm admonition to be more careful in the future. But if he had been told five minutes before to stop throwing the ball in the living room, and he so ignored the requirement and knocked the lamp over and broke it, then he must be spanked clearly and decisively. This is not because of the lamp but because of the disobedience to his parents. Suppose a child in a certain circumstance is told to do something, and he says, yes, mother, and then he runs off to do it. But then some situation comes up which distracts him from obedience. In a situation like that, the parent should remind him of his responsibility to follow through and perform the required task. An appropriate word quietly spoken may deal with the situation. But over an extended period of time, the child will probably begin saying, I forgot, as an excuse or defense. At this point, he should be spanked for the forgetfulness. Such discipline helps a child with his memory skills. We tend to think that forgetting is a reasonable excuse, whereas in scripture it is an additional offense. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, awesome things by the Red Sea, Psalm 106, 21 and 22. This was not an excuse, it was the problem. Another important aspect of discipline is that it must be administered quickly. Moreover, the younger the child is, the more important it is that the discipline be swift. When he is really young, a long time between the offense and the discipline will make it difficult for him to realize what the spanking was for. If a toddler wants to put electric plugs into his mouth, cannot be told, you did that three times a day and I'm going to have your father spank you when he gets home. Discipline must obviously occur right away. With regard to criminal justice, Ecclesiastes says, because the sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them 
to do evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 In a similar way, the discipline of children must be prompt and immediately associated with the sin. The discipline must be swift and efficient. Many parents undercut this with an early warning system for their children. I am going to count to ten. The children are simply being trained to count and to obey at nine. If the parent gets to eight and the child says to himself, Okay, I have to obey within two seconds. Could not that two seconds have been earlier in the count? When the child hears nothing but, I'm warning you, he's being trained to disobey or obey only when the parent gets to a certain decibel level. This is not how it should be. The scripture should be applied to every situation and expounded regularly. Certain phrases should be repeated in the home so often that they stay with the child through life. If the child has been disciplined effectively, he will one day be heard saying the same things to his children. For example, one of the things I often heard growing up in which we have taught our children and hope they will in turn teach their children is delayed obedience is disobedience. It should be repeated and driven home. It should be enforced in a context of love. The children should learn it. Then they will teach their children the same way. Another aspect of effective discipline is that it cannot be prolonged. Pleasantness should reign in the biblical home, and discipline should be a brief event. But in many homes, chronic unpleasantness reigns all the time. When discipline occurs, it is simply a matter of going from bad to worse. Godly discipline is not like that. Of course, there will be acute unpleasantness from time to time during the discipline, but an atmosphere of joy and peace and graciousness reigns most of the time. If the parents are turning discipline into a long, drawn-out process, they are not disciplining the way God instructed. This trap frequently catches parents of older children. At a certain age, the children get too big to spank without abusing their dignity, but they still need to be disciplined. If they were spanked effectively when they were little, then other forms of discipline will be quite effective. There is a popular form of discipline for teenagers which appears to meet this need, but which has its problems. It is called grounding. When a teenager is grounded, the result is frequently two weeks of unpleasantness in the home. But the purpose of discipline is to restore pleasantness to the home. All too often, grounding says, you can't go out and do that. You have to stay here and mope. Suppose they start to mope and are told, you can't mope. They can think, well, what are you going to do if I do it anyway? Ground me? If the teenager is grounded and not pleased with the discipline, unhappiness is going to remain in the home. The heart of the new covenant is centered around forgiveness of sins. We are all forgiven sinners. If children are reminded of their failing on a daily basis for two weeks, then they are going to become discouraged because they are being taught a doctrinal falsehood. The parents are saying that what Isaiah said was false when he wrote, 
Come, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. The purpose of spanking is for the children to be cleansed. When they are clean, the sin is gone. When the grounded teenager has an attitude problem and grounding cannot be put on top of grounding, the relationship has been disrupted. But the whole purpose of discipline is to restore the relationship between parents and children. So if the child is too old to spank, but still needs discipline, the biblical pattern for such discipline is restitution. If the older child has done something that needs discipline, some kind of restitution should be required. The restitution should be directed to the person against whom he has sinned. The restitution may require money to pay for a damaged item, for example, or can be as mild as a required formal apology. A required apology is particularly effective with boys. In this regard, Boys can be very prideful. When a boy has sinned against someone else, nothing goes right to the heart of the matter quite as effectively as requiring him to humble himself in the sight of the person he wronged. It is important not to let him off with a little note that says, Sorry. Sorry for what? Sorry for doing it? Sorry it happened? Sorry he got caught? He should be made to state what the offense was, say he was wrong for doing it, and ask for forgiveness. He will be in agony while he is doing it, but when it is done, it is done. But it is important to remember that if children are being spanked effectively when they are little, the parents will not have monumental problems trying to figure out what to do when they are teenagers. The parental authority must be established and fixed when the children are young. Discipline should fix the problem. When our oldest daughter was a toddler, there was one day when her attitude was just plain bad. And even though she had done nothing exactly disobedient, she certainly was walking right down the line. She was pushing it. I remember saying to my wife that we should look for an opportunity to spank her. Of course, it was not long before she was spanked. What followed was a wonderful illustration for me as a young parent of what discipline was supposed to do. That night, after she was spanked and restored, I could not believe how happy she was. She was dancing around the house. Her sins were gone, and she was forgiven. If the child is undisciplined, unconfessed sin is accumulating and weighing him down. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Hebrews 12.1 If parents do not discipline, they are letting such weight accumulate on their children. If there is a context of love, the bigger the pile gets, the more the child is going to feel out of fellowship with his parents. But when the child is disciplined, the sin is dealt with, and there is joy. Discipline can be understood as either active or passive. The bulk of visible discipline will be active, but there is a place for thoughtful, passive discipline, particularly in the case of really young children. 
Passive discipline occurs when a decision is made by parents not to intervene. For example, what should be done when it is time for bed? The baby is fed, changed, and put to bed. But in bed, he yells and yells. When the parents tell the child to count it all joy when he meets various trials and then leave him there in bed, that is passive discipline. Children should be passively disciplined from the time they come home from the hospital. Active discipline occurs when parents intervene to apply artificial consequences for the improper behavior. There are many features to active discipline which are important for parents to master. The neglect of any one of these features will hinder the effectiveness of the discipline and water it down. In summary, the mode should be biblical. Do not withhold correction from a child, for if you beat him with a rod, he will not die. You shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. The application of discipline should also be painful. There are many Christian parents, particularly mothers, who render the proper mode of discipline useless through half-hearted or timid application. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Hebrews 12.11 If discipline is not painful, it is not discipline. At the same time, discipline must be proportionate and within reason. The right attitude is seen in the Psalms. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. The same kind of thing is seen in the warning found in the New Testament. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3.21 The discipline must be consistent. The Bible teaches that discipline teaches. So if discipline is erratic and capricious, it is teaching lies. Consistent, strict discipline also protects the parent from disciplining in anger, which parents should never do. The wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James 1.20 Parents who feel like disciplining, whose emotions are really into it, are not qualified. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. Galatians 6.1 the pattern set down generally for correction in the church would certainly also apply in the home. Parents who are spiritual are qualified to discipline, but probably don't feel like it. Parents who feel like it are probably not qualified. The solution is for qualified parents to discipline out of obedience to God and not from an emotional reaction. The discipline must be swift. The younger the child, the swifter it must be. At the same time, remember the previous principle that parents should make sure the discipline is applied with the swiftness of principle, not the swiftness of temper. 
Small children do have short memories, and they must know why they are being disciplined. Fundamentally, parents must act as though they believe discipline works. And because the point of discipline is to correct and restore the child, parents must actively restore fellowship after the discipline. The procedure should be something like this. Explain the offense and why scripture teaches that it is wrong. Spank the child. Hold and comfort the child until the crying is done. Explain to the child that all is forgiven. And then pray with the child. The Bible promises nothing for nominal disciplinarians. If a parent withholds correction or disciplines ineffectively, there is no promise concerning the children. There is no promise unless they discipline lovingly, consistently, and biblically. If parents just go through the motions and then look for godly offspring, they will be disappointed. Biblical discipline is painful, consistent, proportionate, considerate, swift, and not prolonged. If discipline is administered in this way, keeping in mind the promises discussed in earlier chapters, there can be an assurance from God. He will fulfill his promise to these parents as they love the Lord their God with all their hearts and as they do so in their family. The Occasions of Discipline When discipline is exercised, the parent should bring the authority of God to bear on the child's disobedience. In Withhold, Not Correction, Bruce Ray has pointed out how Paul teaches children their biblical obligations in Ephesians 6. He first addresses the children directly. He then states the principle, Obey your parents in the Lord. He applies the word, honor your father and mother. He explains the word, which is the first commandment with the promise. This approach should be equally clear to our children. We are tempted to govern by threatening. Stop that. If you do that one more time, I am going to. But it is wrong to be nebulous with threats because it leaves the sorting out of why and why not to the child. If the parent can't come up with a relevant biblical passage for having Johnny stop whatever it is, then there should be a very real question about why it is such a big deal. At the same time, if sin is addressed biblically in the household, then obedience, disobedience, anger, confession, envy, laziness, lying, name-calling, stealing, tattling will all be addressed. Suppose a child is tattling, taking great glee and no small pride in being on the right side of an issue. The parent should address the child like this. Billy, I want you to stop tattling on your sister. God says, where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And where there is no tailbearer, strife ceases. Proverbs 26.20 Do you want to know why you are in fights with your sister all the time? We have a wood stove. What would happen in the winter if we never put wood on the stove? The fire would die out, wouldn't it? What would happen if you would quit tattling on your sister? The arguments would die out. This is what the Word of God says. The child has been addressed and told what is expected for him to do 
where the Bible says to do it, and then the teaching of Scripture has been explained to him. This enables the child to see that these requirements are not arbitrary rules that his parents have made up out of blue sky. A parent can be a strict disciplinarian without being a biblical disciplinarian. But usually such strictness results in a confusion between house rules and God's rules. By what standard? When we think about how we live our lives and we seek to make decisions, we are constantly confronted with the question, by what standard? The question confronts us in the area of discipline as well. Christian parents must diligently seek to see that the heart of their standards is grounded in the Word of God. The Bible does not leave parents stranded on this crucial issue. Parents must obey and apply the Word. It is important to remember that this is not the same thing as setting standards according to denominational traditions or popular evangelical taboos. It is also important to keep in mind the fact that the Bible does not set different ethical standards based on age. When the law was given on Mount Sinai, it was not given for adults only. On the contrary, we should consider the breadth of the law given in Deuteronomy 5, 1-21. If we turn to the next chapter, we see the instruction given to parents there. All the words spoken by God were to be taught to the children, Deuteronomy 6, 4-9. If we turn to the next chapter, we can see the result of a faithful parental instruction. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments, Deuteronomy 7, 9. So in the area of moral behavior, moral attitudes, etc., parents should make no allowances for age. Sin is sin, whether it is mature or immature. The ethical expectations for small children should be identical to those which we have for mature Christian adults. Of course, small children should not be disciplined for physical, mental, or emotional immaturity. But sin is in another category altogether. As parents grow in their understanding of God's requirements, they will be able to sharply distinguish house rules from God's rules. Every household must make decisions on how it will function. As Christians, the moral standards are already set for us. Our job is to study the scriptures to find out what they already are. But there are other issues on which parents must make a decision, and concerning which the Bible provides no explicit instruction. Consequently, parents should make sure the children are instructed on the differences between rules they have made for the home and rules God has made for the home. For example, God's rules forbid lying, and so it must be forbidden in every Christian home. House rules may forbid jumping on the couch. The rules rest upon a different foundation, human wisdom, not divine commandment. If parents are not careful in instructing the children in terms of this distinction, the children could easily wind up legalistic or 
rebellious. Parents should also understand that if they learn to discipline for trivial things, then they will not have to discipline for great transgression. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless, and I shall be innocent of great transgression. Psalm 19, 12, and 13. In the same way, parents should protect their children from presumptuous sinning through consistent discipline as a means of protecting them from a great fall. Big oaks come from little acorns. No overwhelming problem in child rearing started out overwhelming. In every case, it was allowed to grow to crisis proportions from very small beginnings. Many of the more common little sins, which are frequently left undisciplined, are whining, squabbling, slow obedience, tail-bearing, laziness, and disrespect. Parents must not lead their children into temptation. Our Heavenly Father minimizes temptation for us. We must do the same for our children. Matthew 6.13, 1 Corinthians 10.13 For example, parents should not keep the kids up to all hours and then marvel when they are crabby. Parents must not issue commands like a machine gun and then wonder why all the commands are not obeyed. Parents are to imitate God, not some tyrannical agency of the federal government. Parents must pick their battles carefully, just a few of them, and then win all the battles. It is also a good idea to prepare children for times of temptation. Each family knows when the times of testing are. They may involve a desperate hunt for socks every Sunday morning. Maybe they will come whenever the family goes to someone's home for a visit. Parents should anticipate and instruct their children in preparation for these times, whether it is Saturday night or in the car on the way to a friend's house. A short biblical reference list. What does the Bible say about obedience in general? Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Colossians 3.20 That also says, Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Exodus 20.12 What about anger? He who is slow to wrath has great understanding but he who is impulsive exalts folly. Proverbs 14.29 And again in Proverbs, which incidentally is a wonderful book for parents, he who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Proverbs 16.32 What passages can a parent use when the child is being urged to confess sin? He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. Proverbs 28.13 The same thing is taught in the New Testament. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. 1 John 1 9. Suppose a child is guilty of envying another child. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness to the bones. Proverbs 14.30 And James tells us, But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. James 3.14-16 Another common problem, particularly with boys, is laziness. The hand of the diligent will rule, but the lazy man will be put to forced labor. Proverbs 12.24 And Paul says, For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Lying is a common problem with children. Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. Colossians 3.9 and 10 And Solomon teaches us that the truthful lip shall be established forever but a lying tongue is but for a moment. Proverbs 12:19. Children have not been alive very long before they discover the pleasure found in letting someone else have it. They learn how to call names. But Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, You fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Stealing is not limited to bank robbing and shoplifting. More than one child has come home from a friend's house with some little thing clutched in a tiny little fist. You shall not steal. Exodus 20:15 And children should also be taught the importance of restitution. Speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass and full value, plus one-fifth of it, and give it to the one he has wronged. Numbers 5, 6, and 7. And of course, children prone to self-righteousness love to tattle. This is a sin which good children, children rarely needing discipline, love to commit. You shall not go about as a talebearer among your people. Leviticus nineteen sixteen, And Proverbs teaches us that he who covers a transgression seeks love but he who repeats a matter separates friends. Proverbs 17.9 The influence of such scriptural instruction can be profound. I can still remember two of my earliest lessons in scripture taught to me and my siblings by my blessed mother through constant repetition. My mother was our faithful Moses as he spoke to the children of Israel in Numbers. Be sure your sin will find you out. And of course, 
I also learned in King James, be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Such lessons last for a long time. Disciplining Little Ones God the Father is a good Father to us. As the Father pities His children, so the Lord pities those who fear Him. For He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. Psalm 103 As Christians, we fear and honor Him. As we do, He remembers our frame. This text tells us that the Lord pities us and accommodates our frail capacity. In doing this, the Lord is like a good father, watching over his children. An important principle is demonstrated here, which parents should consistently remember and apply. We are taught that God knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. In this, he is like a human father. So as we seek to be good parents, we must know our children's frame. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Colossians 3.21 This can only come about through carefully studying and considering our children. A special area of importance in this is considering how our children respond to us as we exercise disciplinary authority over them. We forget our children's frame in different ways as we exercise authority. Some parents have gotten caught in the trap of countless rules. Taking their cue from some federal agency, they surround their children with a constant, bewildering stream of requirements. But when laws multiply, so does noncompliance. In contrast to humanistic law, God's law is plain, simple, and to the point. Humanistic law is complex, devious, twisted, contradictory, and endless. Rules in a godly house should therefore be basic and easy to understand. You must always tell the truth. You must always obey us immediately. You must always respect your mother. This does not cover every situation, but it actually does come very close. Another problem is that of unnecessary requirements. Take the example of a mother with a toddler visiting a friend's house. The child is happily playing. When it is time to go, the mother should not thoughtlessly create a showdown. Come here, put on your coat. If she gives a command which is disregarded, then discipline becomes necessary. Command should therefore not be given thoughtlessly thrown out in an offhand way. The mother will save herself a lot of grief if she just goes over and picks her child up. If at that point the child resists, discipline is fully appropriate and necessary. This is not catering to the child. It is simply a matter of picking the battles carefully. Multitudes of occasions will require swift and effective discipline. No home has a shortage of such times. So why create more such occasions than you really need? Yet another problem occurs when parents unnecessarily blindside the kids with a requirement. For example, suppose the kids are playing outside after dinner when one of the parents goes to the door and calls, Time to come in! 
This is just asking for static. A better way is to give some advance warning. 10 more minutes. Then when they are called 10 minutes later, there has been ample time for mental adjustment and spiritual preparation. Another very serious problem exists when parents exercise their authority over their children in a sinful way. And then, for the sake of maintaining authority, refuse to apologize and make restitution. We can characterize this as the problem of stubborn requirements. One of the best ways to teach the sovereignty of God over the home is for the children to see the parents submit to God's authority in practical ways. This can occur in many areas, but one of the most important is through apologies offered to children by parents. This teaches the children that the requirements of the home are not the result of random neuron firings in the parental brain. The requirements are given by God. And the parents are under that authority as much as the children are. A besetting sin of anyone in authority is the reluctance to confess sin for fear of jeopardizing their position. Parents must especially guard against this. So if you screwed up, say so. There are times when a child should be disciplined, but not in a situation when the parent is tempted to do so for self-centered reasons. But discipline is not to be done for the parent's sake, but rather for the sake of training the child. The child must be disciplined out of concern for him. If a child is disciplined because the parent is irritated, then he is being disciplined for the wrong reasons. Discipline for the right reasons is for the child's sake and not for the sake of the parents. Some parents are hard on their children because that is the personality type of the parents. Some parents are soft for the same reason. But as Christians, we must reject the implicit pagan determinism of personality types. God charges us all with the task of being wise parents, no matter who we are. This means that when we take a hard line, we do so biblically and thoughtfully. And when we remember the frame of our children, we do so biblically and thoughtfully. The results will be families which are honoring to God and to the cause of the gospel. Our children will grow up in a home with high disciplinary standards, but those standards will not be burdensome. God says to us that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. 1 John 5, 3. We should be able to say something very similar to our children. Conclusion. Once parents have come to understand the Bible's teaching on the authority they have been given over their children to discipline them, this understanding coupled with the knowledge of the nature of the child creates a new urgency for the task of balanced and faithful discipline. The Bible identifies the refusal to discipline a child as the parents setting their hearts on the child's destruction. Now, of course, a Christian father certainly will never turn to his wife and say, Honey, let's destroy our children. But those who do not discipline are in fact destroying their children. This is taught in Proverbs 
He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. According to the Bible, if the little ones are not disciplined, they are being treated with contempt and hatred. Suppose parents look with tenderness at their sleeping children and ask themselves, do I hate these small children? The obvious answer is no, but if they are not disciplining them, the biblical answer is yes. The biblical assumption which therefore should undergird all child-rearing is very straightforward. Dad and mom are bigger than the children. If the children are doing something wrong and consequently self-destructive, they must be stopped. If the parents refuse to make them stop, for whatever reason, they are treating their children with contempt and hatred. At the same time, child-rearing is not doom and gloom. If children are disciplined well and seriously, it creates an opportunity for a great deal of joy in the home. God will give great joy in the family if the parents are in obedience to Him. Disciplined children are children who are enjoyed. Undisciplined children cannot be enjoyed by the parents. Enjoyment, peace, and order in a Christian home are the fruits of discipline. If child discipline is approached with all the appropriate seriousness, then there is going to be much room for joy laughter and fun, because everyone knows the boundaries and respects them. Parental authority is ministerial, delegated to the parents by God. This means that the parents' authority over their children does not rest upon the size of father and mother or their superior strength, wisdom, intelligence, or age. If children are honoring their parents, they are in fact being obedient to God, not man. There are non-Christian homes where the father runs a tight ship, but the word of God is not there. Just because the home life is disciplined does not mean that it is godly. Children should know that their father and mother are not the ultimate authorities in the home, but are God's ministers who have a Lord above them. The children are to submit to their parents, and the parents are to submit to God. The children should be taught obedience to God through obedience to their parents. The command, obey me because I said, rests upon the parents' intelligence or strength. When the father and mother vest all the authority in themselves, it can be overthrown and removed if the child gets bigger and stronger than they are, or if he thinks he has. But if children are obeying God through obeying, their parents, then that authority can never be toppled.